Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown of the Pastoria Baptist Church, and you are listening to Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria Baptist Church. The scripture reading for this week is Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. These words are the first of four or five servant songs, depending on how, how you reckon them. And it begins by the Lord speaking about the servant and about how he has chosen the servant. The servant whom we will eventually see is a messianic servant, high and lifted up like the king of Isaiah 6, but suffering in order to bear the sins of many, so that by his knowledge many shall be accounted as righteous, will be brought to be right with God. In this particular servant song, we see that he is chosen by the Lord. We see that he will not cry or lift his voice, which we will later see is not just a statement about tooting his own horn, but also a statement that he will not lift his voice, but as a lamb before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And as Isaiah 50, one of the servant songs points out, because the Lord upholds him, he perseveres, and so he does not fail, nor is discouraged, and brings justice to the earth, to the entirety of the isles, and the Gentiles are waiting for him and trusting in him, and he will be the salvation for all the faithful from all the nations. In verse 5, we talk about God and kind of use some of the language from Isaiah 40 about how he created all things and stretches out the heavens. And then the words are used to describe the Yahweh speaking to the servant about the ministry that the servant is to have culminating in a new creation. And so the scripture reads in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set forth judgment unto truth uh, from the earth. Let's try that again. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that createth the heavens and stretcheth them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the dark prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You can go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Today we are looking at verses 1 through 21. 
And we have been working through Matthew. And we've come to this section between Matthew 10 through 12 that shows different responses to Jesus, but primarily the rejection of the Pharisees and with them probably the majority of the Jewish people. And particularly then we we see the type of response and contrast in verses 20 to 30. The people you'd expect to repent, Jesus comes and says woe to them. For they have not repented, though they've seen the mighty works. Whereas the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. And then he thanks the Father for revealing it to little children and hiding it from the wise and prudent. And then Jesus beckons all who are weary and heavy laden, based on the authority he has to come to him who will give the light burden, the the easy, kind yoke that, as Tom was mentioning in Sunday school, it's a thing that people desire. Not to be overburdened, pushed down, to have a yoke that is kind, and ultimately to have rest. And then within that, we move from the promise of rest to some situations about a day of rest and Sabbath day. Matthew chapter 12 Verses 1 to 2. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were unhungered, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Father, we Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I ask that you would bless our time here, that we would understand the obligation upon us to repent, to turn to you, to find the salvation that is only in your Son. And I pray that we would see the hope of that salvation as well, that you are blessing, that you do provide rest, that your son is gentle and not ready to discard. And so, Lord, I I thank you, and I pray that you would be guiding and directing us both now and as we go from here to enjoy you and love you all the more. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Don't miss the forest for the trees. It's an expression that we have, and one of many to be fair, that speaks of not missing the big picture for all the details. Just because you can look at each individual tree does not mean you should focus upon that and miss the whole forest that is before you. But what seems to be the case when we look at the Pharisees and their reactions here in our text is they have looked at the forest, but they've lost it. They've gotten lost in the trees that they are able to see. The focus upon particular rigid, by the letter, complete and total adherence to small portions of the law, that they've missed the point of the law entirely. That they've missed the point of God's relationship to his people, both the scriptures and the covenant that is contained within it. 
Instead of being interested in following after God and loving God, they want to look at these forests, the trees. And so they have complaints about how Jesus and his disciples are working on the Sabbath day. And those complaints become our first two scenes, and then an explanation is our last scene in verses 15 through 21. But we start with something, an event on the Sabbath day. Verses 1 through 7, eating on the Sabbath. And so there is the conflict that we've already read. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Now, they're, they're going through the corn. They're going really through the, the grain. And they're taking. And our first sensitivities say they shouldn't be taking that. They didn't plant it. But it is actually allowed for them to take it. The question is whether they are to take it on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, you are not to do any work. And when this is first given to Israel in Exodus 16, it is particularly about the work of grabbing food on the Sabbath day. They're supposed to take the manna, the bread that's falling from heaven, and have extra of it on the day before so that they don't need to go out to pick on the Sabbath day. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and wonder why are they doing that which is not lawful to do. And the essential argument seems to be, get them in line. Figure out how to break it so that they aren't breaking the Sabbath day. They're your disciples. Take responsibility for them. And Jesus doesn't protest the fact that there is a Sabbath violation. But instead, he makes a basic argument to say, you Pharisees have missed the whole point of the law. And the whole point of the Sabbath, it's not always about rigid keeping of every single thing of the letter. There are times in which the law was compromised and it was justified. He begins with one example, verse 3. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did, when he was in hunger, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. As in verse 1, David is hungry. He is not starving. It doesn't seem like life is dependent in either place. But David goes into the temple and he asks if there's any bread there. And the only bread is the bread, uh, the show bread. Only the priests are supposed to eat that. But he does. He has given it for him and the people that are with him because he's on an urgent mission. He's trying to save himself from Saul. The priest who's giving him the bread thinks that he's on a merchant mission for the king. Both of them make a decision that particularly abiding by the law 
is not as important as the mission that they are on and say they should go through this. Now, the author of Samuel doesn't tell us whether David and Abimelech are, or Ahimelech are right in this or not, but Jesus is saying that they were. But then he goes one step further, gives another example. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? almost goes without saying, though there are particular provisions, that the priests would have to work every single day. That they may be able to take a different day off, but someone has to be working on the Sabbath day in order for the temple functions to continue, for the bread to always be there, for the light to always be shining, for the sacrifices to be made. And the point that is then made is the temple is greater than the Sabbath. The temple clearly justifies violating the Sabbath. But here's where it gets, and here's where it starts to point out our obligation to this. The temple is greater than the Sabbath, and Jesus is greater than the temple. He is the greater temple. And so... As the authority of the temple shields the priests, so the authority of Jesus shields the disciples. Verse 6. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus, as the greater temple and the greater David, shields his disciples so that they can be called guiltless. And the Pharisees are wrong to accuse them. But the Pharisees should have known better. There is an entire forest that they've missed. And here, once again, Jesus quotes from Hosea, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. God's heart and desire in all of the scripture is not for mere ritualism. It's for faithfulness. It's for mercy. It's for loyalty. He wants the heart of his people, not just rigid keeping of the law. In Isaiah 1, we have some scripture memory verse that's been on the bullet, in the bulletin and on the screen. In the rest of Isaiah 1, there's this point where Jesus, where Yahweh even says, incense is an abomination to him. The very incense he's commanded the people of Israel to give has become an abomination because as Isaiah elsewhere says, they draw nigh to him with his lips, but their hearts are far from him. And so too are the Pharisees. Doing the ritual, doing the right things, and trying to preserve the letter to the uttermost T, 
but ignoring God's actual concern for the heart, for people loyal to him, faithful to him, submissive to him, and loving him in all things. And we, too, probably need to watch that it's not just a ritual that we do, coming to church, reading our Bibles, any of these things that are good, but that we also have the heart because he desires not the ritual but the mercy and the ritual as an outflow, an overgrowth of that loyalty and faithfulness. The end of this scene, Jesus says in verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. So the reason why he can say he's greater than the temple, it's the reason why the disciples are guiltless because he has the authority to declare how the Sabbath should be taken care of and he is greater than the Sabbath and Lord of it. From that point, we enter into our second scene, a healing on a Sabbath. And there's here a conflict, but the conflict is a little bit more contrived. As if now the Pharisees are seeing something they don't like and they want to trap him, or maybe even confirm and tease out, is he really claiming this much authority? And so the conflict comes in verses 9 to 10. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? That they might accuse him. Here the Pharisees are seizing an opportunity from the fact that there's someone who needs help. That hand is withered. It cannot be stretched out. It's stuck. And so they bring him to them, this man with this withered hand, and they say, is it lawful? Is it permissible? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath days? And the implication seems to be that they've taken the idea that on it you shall do no work and applied it even to this work of healing. But then... Jesus makes another argument about the Sabbath, showing from their own evaluation that they aren't consistent in their application of this idea that you should do no work on the Sabbath. Verse 11, And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it? And lift it out. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. What man among you, if he has one sheep and it fall into a pit? will say, I can't do any work, so you have to wait till the next day. Leave the ship hopelessly, going into the pit, trying to get itself out and possibly hurting itself in the process. 
By implication, Jesus' question suggests that everyone would pick up the sheep. Everyone would help out this sheep. But just as Jesus is greater than the temple and greater than David, man is greater than sheep. You can justify breaking the Sabbath for a sheep, you most certainly can for a man as well. And so in verse 12, he says, How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Yes, I can heal on Sabbath day. But not only so, it is permissible and lawful to do any good upon the Sabbath. And then we have the miracle described very briefly, like so often in Matthew's Gospel. And it seems to provide the proof, a sign that he is able to heal, that it is permissible, and that he is indeed Lord of the Sabbath day. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as another. And so with this very public miracle in the synagogue, you would expect, as many other places, that we hear something then about fame going out. But instead, we see the Pharisees. Now they respond. And the Pharisees went out and held a counsel against him how they might destroy him. And in many ways, this counsel by the Pharisees to figure out how to destroy, how to kill Jesus, seems a little overblown if we really are thinking about Sabbath disagreements. But if, as suggested by D.A. Carson, this isn't so much about Sabbath disputes itself, but that the disputes show that Jesus is the Sabbath's Lord, that this is about Jesus' authority to claim to be, because he is Yahweh in the flesh, God the Son sent to save his people from their sins. And it makes sense that they are desiring to kill him. That they find this reality of presenting the Sabbath rest and using it as a good to be used for other people and the authority that he has over that which God has given. They want to kill him. They've missed the forest for the trees. They've missed that the whole point of what they've been studying their whole lives was to point out Jesus as the one who would come and save. But I think we also would be in danger of missing the forest for the trees if we looked at verses 1 to 14 as about the Sabbath. I think verses 15 to 21 give us a key of how we are to understand this. And it begins like this, with the response of Jesus. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. So when Jesus knew 
that the Pharisees were striving to take counsel to figure out how to kill him. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't fight against it as we might do. And instead he simply retreats. He withdraws. But he can't withdraw from everyone. The multitudes come and flock to him. They want to know what this man will say next. They want the healing and they get it. He heals them all. But as we've seen in a few places before, particularly Matthew 8, 4 and 9, 30, despite all the crowds around him, he charges them not to make him known. He charges them with secrecy. And so now he's been silent twice. Silent when the Pharisees came up against him and now silent in regard to the miracle working. And that, at least, is part of why verses 17 to 21 come in. A fulfillment of the words we've already read. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust." Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying. We've seen this type of fulfillment formula. The last time was in chapter 8, verse 17, but here we again have the idea that this is done, that it could fulfill, that it might fulfill, that it will fulfill at some point. This begins that fulfillment, and it's Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, that is being fulfilled. And at first instinct, I would say that verse 16 is what is being fulfilled, that he's being silent, not lifting his voice in the street by charging them that they should not make him known. And that's at least part of it. We have to also, though, consider the fact that he didn't raise his voice in order to protect himself, but instead withdrew from the Pharisees. That as later parts in Isaiah, the servant song will say, as a lamb before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. But I'm almost now convinced that this is actually a fulfillment, not just of verses 15 to 16, but verses 1 through 16. Culminating the themes that were being developed subtly there, themes started in verses 25 through 30 of Jesus' authority and the rest he offers to the weary the outsider. And so we will look at this in one set of parallel lines at a time. Starting in verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. You can hear the favor that Jesus has with his Father. My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved 
in whom my soul is well pleased. He may have the hatred of the Pharisees who are trying to kill him, but more important than that, he has the pleasure of Yahweh. And indeed, this intimate relationship with Yahweh, the fact that he is the chosen servant whom Yahweh's soul is well pleased, is the basis for his authority of being Lord of the Sabbath. It's the basis for what he says in 11.27, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. He's chosen and well-pleased, but there is a reason why. The rest of verse 18, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Far from the Pharisees' attempt at wondering why Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, far from their focus on rigid Sabbath-keeping or rigid law-keeping as a whole, Yahweh sends his servant to proclaim judgment and justice, to proclaim good news to the Gentiles who never received the Sabbath in the first place, who never received the law and so couldn't have a rigid keeping of it. He sent him to people like you and me, broken weary, who've sinned before a holy God and deserve to have nothing to do with his presence. Indeed, people like the Pharisees, too. Regardless of how well one can rigidly keep the Sabbath, God's presence is a scary thing for anyone with sin. Anyone who would lie, anyone who would go about their lives as if God doesn't exist, We are born with rejection of him. Born spitting in his face and sinning. And on that trajectory, we are to go to be far away from him forever. Far away from all of his good presence and blessings. Far away from the one thing that that can satisfy But he sent, Jesus was sent with the Spirit of God upon him to show judgment to the Gentiles, to provide hope for the outcasts and the weary, so that we can come to him. So that we can look at the one who was pierced, who died and bore the sins of many, that we might have life. We deserve death, and he died in our place. He went onto the cross. He was humiliated and killed, and he rose again in victory. And we can turn from ourselves, from our own sin, and come to him and have eternal life and be with him in his presence forever, having been cleansed from all of the things that make it dangerous for us to be in his presence. 
come today. If you haven't already, come to him. Repent and believe. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Verse 19, he shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. And this is only begun to really be fulfilled in our passage before us today. We've hinted at already and we've really already seen He doesn't cry in terms of tooting his own horn, telling people, now that I've healed you, make sure everyone knows about it so that I can be praised more and more and be known as a great wonder worker that I am. But he also is silent to those who are trying to kill him. And Matthew will point out twice in the crucifixion accounts, when he is before trials, he remained silent and opened not his mouth. He did not cry, nor did any man hear his voice in the streets saying, do not take me, do not kill me, but he gave himself willingly for us. And that is the same gentility he still works in us. As verse 20 begins, a bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. It's easy enough to think that a, a reed, a piece of stick, would be quite easy to break if it's already bruised. And if you're lighting a candle and the candle starts to smoke, you can see that extinguishing it, quenching it, would be quite simple. But it's not just that it's easy to break, it's also that a bruised reed and a smoking flax are actually kind of useless. A reed is often used for measuring, but if it's bent and bruised, it can't measure anything effectively because it's not straight. And a wick that only smokes is not providing the light necessary to do any good in a dark room. It's not just easy to do, but the proper right thing to do to break a reed and discard it, to quench the wick that is useless and providing no good. Yet, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, is meek and lowly enough, desiring to give rest to the weary enough that though we are bruised reeds and smoking flax, though by our own creatureliness we are this, and then further by our own sin, he doesn't break us, he doesn't discard us, he doesn't act in that type of a way, but instead, as R.T. France says, The imagery thus describes an extraordinary willingness to encourage damaged or vulnerable people, giving them a further opportunity to succeed, which a results-oriented society would deny them. 
The servant will not be quick to condemn and to discard, but will persevere until God's purpose of justice has been achieved. Here Matthew finds a further portrait of the meek and lowly Jesus who offers a kind yoke and a light burden, the giver of rest to the weary and the heavy loaded. Christian today. If you feel damaged or vulnerable, if you feel you are ready to break, if you feel in some way that you are useless and could never be of use, Jesus is not prepared to discard you. He will not break the bruised reed. He will make that which is crooked straight. He will guide us and bring us hope and rest. He will work to restore us. We need not lose hope. We are indeed bruised reeds. We are indeed, in some very real senses, vulnerable, damaged, and useless. But not in his hands. So come to him, find rest, come to the gentle Jesus. And then it ends, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Just as in verse 13, when he is announcing and showing judgment to the Gentiles, here again, he will continue working until he send forth judgment unto victory, and the Gentiles shall trust in him. Not the rigid Sabbath keepers, not those who focus on mere externals, but those who are truly weary, outcast, and outsiders. People like you and me who have nothing to offer, but come empty-handed to him who has borne our sins and who is prepared to give rest to the weary. Father, we do thank you for giving your son, for giving this opportunity for us to have rest. And I ask that you would allow for all of us to come to you, come to your son, recognize that he will not discard that which is beginning to break, but restore it. And may both believer and unbeliever come to you. And if anyone here does not know you and has not come, let them talk, let them speak up, let us be able to show them what that looks like. And Lord, we do thank you for this time in your word. Continue to be with us as we finish off this worship service. Let us enjoy worshiping in song in response to your word. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.
you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>